This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Lepstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sound. Higher and higher, filling it with sound. Filling it with sound. They sound quite mad, don't they? In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood. Like a house in a whirlwind, or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs, or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself, or to someone else. Good morning, Rick. Good morning to you, Tonio. How are you doing this morning, my friend? (laughs) <laughs> I'm well. I had a good night's sleep, and right now it's just prior to sunrise out here in New Mexico, and we're getting that, uh, you know, it's sort of like the, the, the sunset color in the clouds is happening prior to the sun coming up, so it's just a beautiful day. Oh, that's so sweet. We're having a bit of a wet, rainy spell. Well, do you find, because you live in Vermont, and I used to live in Vermont only for a couple of years, but... Do you feel the kind of magic that exists from, from living in Vermont, even, even if the rain is coming today? Yes, that's why I'm here. I mean, that's a big part of why I'm here, and I live in the woods. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, because, I mean, I was always reminded living there, it was almost like every turn of the road, and I'd be looking at whatever scene and going, oh, this is just so gorgeous. Yeah, Vermont is definitely one of the most beautiful places in the world. Yeah, and and I think one of the things also was that, and I I imagine it still exists, there's such a sense of community, and I think that has to do with the smallness that, you know, and it's the same way out here in Taos, which is, there's good and bad to that. You kind of know whether you want to or not other people's business. But on the other hand, there are people always around to talk to who are willing to help do all those things like a great small community. Yes, that's a lot like that here as well. Yeah. So where do you want to start today? Well, that's a good question. There's a number of ways we could start, 
But uh, I was sort of thinking of beginning with imagination, just because I had a really magical morning this morning. Describe that. I woke up early, and I was laying in bed, and my mind was going, and I just let it go. I, I let it go for a while, and I was just observing and enjoying it, and then I decided to give it a little nudge, you know, nudge, <laughs> it, nudge it in a certain direction, uh-huh. and it just turned really wonderful and and magical and then and then I nodded off to sleep and I was having these wonderfully creative dreams and one of them at the end of it I realized oh that would make a fantastic movie do you want to share that dream or is it too complicated no it's actually quite simple my sense of it was that it was from the perspective of a little girl on the street and she had a moment of pause and in that moment of pause, she entered another universe. Oh, interesting. And then I came out of that, and I thought, wow, that was amazing. That would make such a, an incredible movie, because it had very powerful visual quality. I don't remember any of the content whatsoever, but yeah. it, it made me think of, remember the red balloon? Oh, yeah, of course. It wasn't at all like that, but it was similar in the quality of it, in that the balloon just took you on this journey. Yeah, there was something quite magical yes. about the whole thing. Exactly. And, and that's actually such a, a great way to sort of begin, you know, what we're doing today, because I was thinking about, in my own version, this kind of magical, mysterious quality about the soul and how it makes its connections and and how it appears and does all those things. So tell me, let's go back to your film. When going over to this parallel universe, well, would you call it a parallel universe, or was it completely different? It was completely different. It wasn't oh, wow. parallel at all. It was just completely different. And, you know, this morning I was actually thinking about universes and, and the language around that and realizing that, you know, the notion of parallel universes, that's an incorrect characterization because it, it leads you in the wrong direction visually, because that implies that there are universes running parallel to each other. And, right. and the multiverse concept, for me, is an infinite number of universes emerging out of an infinite number of zero points mm. in all directions at the same time. Each universe yeah. is expanding in, in all directions and expanding infinitely in time and outside of time. So these are happening all simultaneously throughout time. In every moment of the past and future, as well as in every moment in, in space-time. This is kind of like that, that idea that I think, you know, that if, again, if we're talking about the soul, the soul loves the idea of unlimited possibilities. Yes. <laughs> and that's, what, well, that's what you're talking about here, is the, the idea. And I think that we could almost you know, turn that from the reality of what you're talking about, which may in fact be true, and I just don't have the physics to comprehend you know, that kind of thing, to the metaphor of, well, 
So what if we do have the great conversation at the clerk at the grocery store? Or what if we do have this wonderful walk through the woods where everything is just lit up? And it doesn't even matter if the leaves are on the trees this time of year or not, that the wetness from the rain gets everything a little more saturated, particularly in terms of the color of whatever's happening out there. Right. Each, each new moment brings a different quality of experience. Yes. And you mentioned the soul loves infinite possibility, and that's what I was really grooving on this morning, was, was this sense of how much I love that feeling of infinite possibility, and really acknowledging and appreciating that whether it's real or not in terms of our world or not, it certainly feels that way for me. And to me, even if it isn't necessarily real in that moment, even the thought of it is thrilling. And the feeling of it, yeah, right. Yeah. That thrilling feeling of it, which gives it a quality of reality that to me is actually more significant than being able to explain it as being factually real. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tonio, this is up to you. There's this Anne Sexton poem that I have in the book, which is called Welcome Morning, which kind of, you know, broaches this very thing in terms of imagination. And tell me, if you want me to read it, it's not very long. It's up to you. Here's what I have to say to you about that. You don't have to ask me. <laughs> Just say, I've got a poem that I okay. think will fit. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. This is Anne Sexton's poem, Welcome Morning. There is joy in all, in the hair I brush each morning, in the cannon towel, newly washed, that I rub my body with each morning, in the chapel of eggs I cook each morning, in the outcry from the kettle that heats my coffee each morning, in the spoon and the chair that, that cry, hello there, Anne, each morning, in the godhead of the table that I set my silver plate cup upon each morning. All this is God, right here in my pea green house each morning. And I mean, so often forget to give thanks. To faint down by the kitchen table in a prayer of rejoicing as the holy birds at the kitchen window peck into their marriage of seeds. So while I think of it, let me paint a thank you on my palm for this God, this laughter of the morning, lest it go unspoken. The joy that isn't shared, I've heard dies young. And I hope we do a lot more poetry this morning. <laughs> no problem. Actually, you, you'd probably laugh, don't you, if you saw my dining room table here. It's completely covered with poems, and Lord knows, of course, where we're going to go, but they're ready and able when and if the moment arrives. Fantastic. So getting back to my morning and dreams, after that, eventually the alarm went off and I hit the snooze button and I have five minutes to snooze in between. Yeah. And I went back into my dreams and I repeated that. I hit the snooze button when it went off and I went back into dreamland and I've conditioned myself to be able to go right back into dreams very quickly with that five-minute snooze. That's cool. That's something that's hard for me. That's really very interesting. Well, fairly recently, I read that 
it's very difficult, if not impossible, for us to go back that quickly. Uh huh. And so I just said, either I need a longer snooze period, I need to find a, an alarm clock with a longer snooze, which I wasn't able to find, or I'm going to disregard what I read and I'm going to, you know, avail myself <laughs> of, of, of this notion of infinite possibility, which means, yeah, I can do whatever I choose to do or want to do or, or whatever I consider to be possible. So anyway, I just kept going back into dreaming and it was the most delicious morning. And tell me, have you ever gotten to the place where you've been able to do lucid dreaming? That is, you can participate almost, well, consciously in the dream as the dream is occurring. I only have one clear memory of a classic lucid dream, but I've had other dreams where I have been conscious in the dream and made conscious choices within the dream, but they were not 100% to the degree of a classic lucid dream. It was a partially lucid dream because I wasn't aware that I could do all these magical things mm. in the dream. I was just aware that I could make really clear, conscious choices in relation to the circumstances around me. Yeah. So I was still in the dream, whereas in a lucid dream, I think the classic condition of it is that you're aware that you're in a dream and you have the option of completely changing everything. Yeah, and actually, I've only had one experience of that in my own life, and and actually, it was a nightmare, and I'll tell you very quickly, it was here in in my own house, and I was walking down the the one hall that I have in the house, and in this hall, out from the the floor was a hand grabbing me by the T-shirt and was going to pull me down through through the floor down to Lord knows where. And it was absolutely terrifying, full-on nightmare. And as this was happening, the hand has, has got my T-shirt, you know, bunched up and is pulling them halfway, you know, to the floor. I, I thought, I have to come up with the strongest possible thing I can come up with in order to counter this. And I immediately, um, I immediately said, I think out loud, Christ energy. And boom, the hand was gone and everything was fine. End of the dream. That's similar to the quality of a dream that I had that I wouldn't call a classic, but just a semi-lucid dream where I was in this restaurant, busy restaurant with a black and white checkered floor and round tables. And it was a bustling scene. And I was lying on the floor, curled up under the table. And I don't remember everything about it, but I just remember feeling very strongly that by staying there in that kind of fetal position under the table, that I was completely safe with all of the ruckus going on around me. And I made that choice to just stay there and to... and be in that really wonderfully safe feeling space within that dream. Does that sound a little metaphorical in terms of just your own life, you know, as far as leaving the city and getting yourself wrapped around, you know, with, with the woods around you and having a certain amount of solitude that makes you feel safe? Sort of, but more of what 
the metaphor would be is that whatever circumstances I'm in, I can find that space within me that I choose. Oh, that's beautiful. And that's what the dream was about for me. Was yeah. that I have that I have that power of choice in any moment under any circumstances, including a dream. Yeah, yeah. In that case. Yeah, yeah. And you know, we're we're hitting this very interesting terrain here, Tonyo, because you know, as you know, there's a chapter in the book, uh, you know, about dreams, and I imagine you know some some part of me and in, in this other universe would be, you know, there would actually be a school. So, for instance, even elementary school where one of the first things discussed on a particular day at school would be the teacher saying, okay, kids, let's talk about if anybody had any dreams last night, and then start out. And this is that sort of mystery thing I've been thinking about lately just in in relation to the soul, which is this incredible information we get from our dreams, and for the most part, it's kind of ignored in our culture. You know, it's not really, unless you, you know, go to, say, therapy school or something, and and then you'll start getting into it. Uh, but it, it it seems to me it's it's like direct direct conversation with the soul is what's happening in our dreams, and to what extent we want to pay attention to it is really up to us individually. Yes, and that's really why I'm interested in the notion of imagination because I think it's really connected. There's a bridge there, and. There's a poem in the book titled Magic Words. Yes. Do you have it at in the fact, I'll just pull it up because I have the book here in front of me, and that's from the chapter on imagination. And let me get to it. Only just take a second um, for me to find it. But, yeah, that was, uh, I remember the, the translator, a really sweet guy who was in New York City, and I had to ask him if it was going to be okay for me to go ahead, and he was just very gracious. And said, sure, go ahead and use the poem. So while you're finding it, I'll just, I'll just let people know that I'm talking with Rick Halterman, who's the author of this wonderful book that we have been going back and forth through and referring to and, and reading poems and quotes out of titled Curriculum of the Soul. And I have the poem right here now. Magic words, and this is, uh, this is an Eskimo poem. There's no real uh, attribution outside the fact that it was anonymous. So here's the poem. In the very earliest time when both people and animals lived on Earth, a person could become an animal if he wanted to, and an animal could become a human being. Sometimes they were people and sometimes animals, and there was no difference. All spoke the same language. That was the time when words were like magic. The human mind had mysterious powers. A word spoken by chance might have strange consequences. It would suddenly come alive, and what people wanted to happen could happen. All you had to do was say it. Nobody could explain this. That's the way it was. And that's connected to what we were talking about earlier, about the notion of infinite possibility and how you talk about how the soul loves the notion of, and the experience, and the feeling, the sense of infinite possibility. Yeah. That there's no limits to the experience that we can have, regardless of whether it's rational or makes sense or is factually valid in our current world or current perspective of the world. 
Yeah, and you know, you're, you're reminding me, there's a story, this is Dr. Hugh Len, the one workshop I, I went to in which he was presiding over. This is the man who brought Ho'oponopono forward, and he was talking about walking down the street with a friend, and there were a bunch of dogs barking at them, and the friend was like, oh gosh, you know, this is a little annoying, and Dr. Hugh Len simply turned to the dogs, and I don't know what version of Ho'oponopono that he did, but the dogs immediately silenced. And I don't know if you've had experience, because I think Dr. Hugh Len was kind of like a modern-day shaman in that sense. And it really wasn't about power. It was really more about just sort of playing in this field, and, and who knows what results might, might come about. But he seemed to have a certain amount of that ability to be able to, like, well, let's sort of shift the reality here, and boom, the dogs are quiet. Yeah, that reminds me of an old episode of the old TV series, Kung Fu. Did you ever see that? <laughs> yeah, with David Carradine? Yes. Yes. There's a wonderful episode where he is sent down into a pit of snakes, of poisonous vipers and rattlesnakes, and he's taught, you know, there's all these flashbacks with his teachers, how they teach him to become one with his environment. Yeah. And so this becomes a challenge for him. You know, running this gauntlet, and the only way he can do it is if he can become one with his environment so that the snakes don't see him or feel him to be other. Yeah. And if they do, they will attack him. And so he manages to uh, walk that gauntlet of snakes, walk right through them, and come out the other side. Fascinating. Isn't that great? Yep. So, so, you know, I think, and it's just like going back to the poem, um, I remember Dr. Hugh Len's mentor was a woman by the name of Simonia Morea, I believe was her name. Mm-hmm. And she, of course, was Hawaiian. She had this ability to basically talk to the plants and find out, for instance, if she was treating somebody, she could talk to the plants and find out specifically what plant would be useful in treating that particular person through her conversation with those plants. Yes, and that's a wonderful way of living in our world, with our world. And there are many accounts of shamans who who actually do the exact same thing with plants. Mm -hmm. And it's totally foreign and out of our Western sense of reality, but there are cultures other cultures in the world that do these, what we would consider to be magical things, and they are very natural. That's so true, Tojo, because I think of most indigenous cultures, because of their relationship to nature, that's, that's where they've always been, they have developed these amazing abilities, and I think there is a, a certainly a current fascination as far as how much can we learn from that before these cultures vanish. And there are actually at least a few Westerners who have that ability to communicate with plants and to, and to hear plants actually communicating directly with them. And I'm, I have a book that, I'm, that I've been reading, and I'm waiting for the opportunity to speak with this wonderful woman who lives in Australia. So it's a bit of a challenge to make the connection to do the interview. But I'm, I'm so looking forward to it because... The book is is absolutely amazing, and it's titled, Thus 
spoke the plant. Mm, nice. Very nice. So, yeah, this is that interesting thing, because I think now, again, we're, we're still very much in the soul world. There's that, like, the mystery of our dreams and, and the, all that, all the unconscious material that it can bring up, and, and ideally we bring it into consciousness. In fact, there's this great quote that I was looking at recently, which is from Carl Jung, and he says, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life, and you will call it fate. So between the dreams and then this whole other connection to the natural world, there's, and it's interesting because this is where a lot of modern science sort of poo-poos these sort of these mysteries and these relationships. Like I was thinking about this morning, there was that Rupert Sheldrake experiment, and he was really trying to point out that science could be really going into these other areas and trying to find out. And the one experiment, which was a very simple experiment, he said these are experiments everyday people could do. The experiment had to do with a person who owned a dog, and what Rupert wanted to find out was how did the dog know when their particular caretaker was going to show up so that the dog would be waiting on the other side of the front door? So in one particular case, I believe it was a woman who was the, the owner of the dog. And, of course, when she would drive up, people would say, well, of course, the dog can hear the car. So she would do everything from taking a bus home, then walk to the house so the dog couldn't hear. She would do all the different versions, have a friend drop her off by the curb, walk to the house each and every time the dog was waiting at the front door. So there's that mystery thing of, so what is actually happening so that the dog can actually sense the presence of their caretaker? And there are also lots of stories of dogs getting separated from their owners on when they're traveling yep. and, and actually traveling thousands of miles without any outwardly acknowledged guidance to return home on a journey that they've never done before. In fact, Disney even made a film about that, Tonyo. I think it's called The Incredible Journey. I think it was a dog and a cat that did exactly the thing you're talking about. Yes, and there's, there are lots of stories just like that that have been thoroughly documented. Yeah. So this is you know, such an interesting area because now we clearly are out of the terrain of the linear, literal, analytical mind because that kind of thinking really can't explain it at all. And now we're into this whole other terrain of, oh, so there really are connections that we can't really put down into words, but they clearly are taking place. Mm-hmm. And... Another aspect of the imagination and the magic of words that I love and I know you love is, is how poetry is a kind of language or use of language of magic and imagination, that it uses language in, in a very different way than we normally do. Absolutely. And you know, I, I think I, I mentioned this in the introduction to the book, the reason why I rely so heavily, I think, it's Percy Bush Shelley's quote that, that he believes poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. And the way that I translate that in my own existence is this idea that, that the true poets 
are already feeling the future and able to put it down into the language that they use. And this is not to predict, like, who is going to be elected during the next, you know, presidential election or anything like that. This has to do with the far greater currents that are happening around us in our lives and to what extent we're going to pay attention to it. So, for instance, here's a, here's a very short Marie Halpholm, which I had only been thinking of in the last few days, actually because, I should tell you this, Tonio, a casual friend, but someone who I really cared for quite dearly. She died, oh, about a week ago here in town. She had a brain aneurysm. And it just so struck me. And, I mean, I, there was that night I got home, and actually I was composing an email to you, and in the middle of composing that email, I just wept. I ended up weeping for about two or three minutes because I knew the grief was going to hit me at a certain point. So anyhow, it, it got me thinking about this poem, rehab poem, called My Dead Friends. And just a little background, she had a brother who died of AIDS. I think he was 29 or 30 years old, and so she mentions him in the poem. So here's the poem. I have begun when I'm weary and can't decide an answer to a bewildering question to ask my dead friends for their opinion. And the answer is often immediate and clear. Should I take the job? Move to the city? Should I try to conceive a child in my middle age? They stand in unison, shaking their heads and smiling. Whatever leads to joy, they always answer. To more life and less worry. I look into the vase where Billy's ashes were. It's green in there, a green vase. And I ask Billy, if I should return the difficult phone call, and he says, yes, Billy's already gone through the frightening door. Whatever he says, I'll do. Isn't that gorgeous? I love that line. Whatever leads to joy, they always answer. Yes, that is wonderful. It, that's, a, that's a big part of the orientation of my life these days. Well, and I can tell that when you were talking about your dream this morning and the imagining that was happening around that dream, that you created this very interesting wiring, Tonio, which you should be out there giving workshops, helping people with this wiring, which is like you created this wiring that clearly leads you to joy, you know, where for most people I think there's a certain struggle or it's like a happenstance that all of a sudden joy might appear in their lives. You've created a wiring which is like, well, let's just add this to our breathing. <laughs> well, I've been cultivating it over quite a few years as I've learned that it's an option. It's a possibility that, that is available to me. So why not avail myself of that? If I have a choice, why not exercise that choice? Uh-huh. Yeah. And, you know, I, know I, don't, I don't think I'm as adept as you are in this terrain, but I know, for instance, if I go out dancing... It's never a problem, provided that the music is, is of whatever, you know, that, that it moves my body. And usually when I'm out there in public, I'll do it. When I'm not particularly feeling joyful, like, for instance, the grief of thinking about this friend who, who had died from a brain aneurysm, that I tend to go out in the woods and want to be more quiet, and there's always something shifts in the process of doing that as well. Well, actually, I get tremendous joy out of grief like that as well. Oh, absolutely. What a relief when I was crying that other night and going, there you are, thank you. It was like my old friend was back, and I could embrace 
that, you know, the tears, because I knew, I knew on some level, Tonio, that if I wasn't releasing that, if that wasn't going to take place, it would be bottled up inside of me. It was going to show up sideways somewhere, and I was just waiting, just like I think I needed to be quiet enough and patient enough, and then a certain amount of surrender on my part to get to that place of, boom, there it was. I'm like, oh, you know, even for me in the midst of crying, I'm like, it feels so great to be alive. Yes, and there's something really powerful about what you just said that I would sort of translate in another way that when we're grieving, when we deeply grieve a sense of loss of something, when we're able to fully immerse ourselves into that experience and actually allow that experience to fully be, mm-hmm. which I consider to be the actual definition of letting go. Letting go, for me, is allowing things to be fully as they are, as they are in this moment. And by being able to fully allow ourselves to experience that grief, it allows us to stay open to the magical possibilities that can emerge from our direct relationship, not only to the grief, but to everything that engendered the grief, including the connection to whatever was in our past, whether it was a person or an experience. It allows us to connect to the whole of that experience. Yeah, and you're really pointing to this great thing, which was an idea that Rilke had brought up. And actually, I'll read it again. It's a short poem, and this is his poem, Lament. And and here it is. Who will you mourn, heart? always struggling your way through incomprehensible beings. Perhaps even more futile by maintaining your direction, holding on to the future, to that which was lost. Of course, that's us wanting, you know, that person or whatever to still be alive. And here's the second half. Earlier, you complained. What was it? A fallen berry of jubilation, not yet mature? Now, however, my whole tree of joy breaks. It breaks in the storm, my slow tree of joy. Most beautiful in my invisible landscape, you who made me more evident to the unseen angels. So I love that idea at the very end, that like when you were just talking about this, to fully immerse into this experience, grief, for instance, that now we've, we've actually revealed ourselves to the unseen angels that are always here to help us if necessary and maybe lead us to the next place. Yes. By being fully, fully present with whatever is right now opens up all the doors of possibility into the next whatever. Yes. Yes. And I think the Buddhists are really quite good talking about this, Pema Chodron in particular, where... She's saying, stay with the experience. And I think that's, of course, the tendency of our own culture. It was like, if I have, if I'm running anxiety, depression, whatever, I go to a Western doctor, and immediately they're going to prescribe something to get me out of the experience. And the Buddhist approach is really quite different, and I think far, far healthier when it's all said and done, short of, of course, someone being in full-on trauma, that to stay with the experience and what does like I've been having this conversation with my own brother, as you know, I've, I've been telling you who he's been going through depression. I said, 
So why not have a conversation with that depression? Find out exactly what it has to say, what it's doing, why it's hanging around, and what gifts it might actually have to offer you in the process. Mm-hmm. And I think many people make the mistake of thinking that staying with something is equivalent to holding on to something, particularly something unpleasant. I think you're right. And they'll get stuck in the, you know, the, the sort of woe is me kind of thing, and this feels so awful and all that. And this is where, and I don't know, tell me if this showed up in your mystery school teachings, but in the one that I took with, with Robert Waterman, he made a very big point early on in the mystery school teaching when an experience happens that rather than identifying with the experience, choose to take it as information. Yes, absolutely. But a different way of saying that could be allow experience to happen and to experience it, but don't hold on to it. Don't cling to it. If it's a delicious and desirable experience, let it go. Don't cling to it. Don't create an agenda with it. Don't get stuck in it. Don't become fixated upon it as you're you're saying don't identify with it. Exactly. And the same with a negative experience or an experience that you find to be either unpleasant or scary or or just something that repels you. Don't get caught in the trap of of identifying with the repulsive or repelling response to it, which can become a fixation or a kind of identification and like your Carl Jung quote, if you're not conscious of the way you're relating to your experiences, those experiences will follow you. They will continue to show up as if it was your fate until you become conscious of it and come to terms with it. And to come to terms with something means to do it consciously. Exactly. In fact, there's a parallel Carl Jung quote to that very idea you just mentioned where he says, it's short, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And that, of course, is the hard, hard work. You know, this leads into, and, and we've been talking about, or at least we've been referring to this Rumi poem in our correspondence, and it's very short. Again, this is the guest house. Uh, this being that, a human is a guest house. Yes, and that is probably one of the classic poems about what we're talking about and about human life and human experience. Yeah. So shall I go ahead just and just say it very quickly? Oh, please. Okay. <laughs> the guest house. I've been wanting to get to that poem for a long time. <laughs> right. Well, here we are finally. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thoughts, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Wow. Love that. 
<laughs> well, it is just, there's that brilliance. It's sort of like, you know, what Rilke was intimating in, in his poem Lament about, you know, you that may be more evident to the unseen angels that would be our guides. That here again, he's, he's, here's Rumi saying so beautifully this idea that instead of this very natural tendency to want to, no, I don't want, I don't want the grief, I don't want the depression, but as, you know, Robert Waterman had said way, way back when, he was like, the soul makes the, no distinction between the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's all just experience. And don't start judging it, just notice it. And Rumi's adding this other little beautiful twist at the end where he's saying, but these are actually guides that are going to be taking us to the new place if we're willing to welcome them in instead of rejecting them. Right. They are the stepping stone to the next step. And in order to be able to do that, one has to keep one's heart open. We have to keep our feeling level of experience open to it because when we shut down, we're, we're shutting down emotionally. We experience it in our physical body and in our mind as well. But I think that it's at the level of the heart the central place in our being, in our heart, that we shut out possibility by refusing to avail ourselves of all, all the guests that show up at our house, all of the experiences that are given to us in our life, as Rumi so beautifully puts into words. And, and maybe just to, this is adding on to the very thing you're saying, when I, you know, there's that chapter I have on courage, and, and I point out that courage derives from the French word core, C-O-E-U-R, and that is the heart, that we have to have enough heart in order to have the courage to get through some of the stuff. For instance, and, and this is an interesting area, Tonio, I don't know, because we haven't really talked about a particular dark night of the soul in, in your particular life, but I know, for instance, when I talk to my brother, and he's really incapacitated at this moment in terms of depression, it's really hard for him to even consider the idea of having the heart to getting, you know, having the courage to really start fully experiencing this sort of thing. And, you know, we touched upon this. Remember at the end of our very first interview, and I was saying, so... Was, it, was there a certain kind of faith, and not faith in God or, or whatever, or faith that this is going to resolve itself, but faith to somehow endure to get you through what we were talking about during that particular interview? You know what? When you just said faith, I think that's what I would equate to what you were talking about as trusting in life. Yes. Yes. Instead of necessarily like my... You know, my Jewish faith, my Catholic faith, my Hindu faith, whatever. This is more the soul faith, that the soul knows what it's doing. Why not hang in there with that knowing? Or not necessarily that the soul knows what it's doing, but it knows its place in this universe and trusts that whatever happens, it's still part of the whole. Yep. Regardless of whether it's a catastrophe or something... Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, this is, you know, again, back to, you know, Robert Waterman and his partner, Terry Thorne. They have this very little saying, which they use all the time, because they really see the soul as really our connection to the divine energies, i.e. through love. And they just keep saying, love will have its way. 
Mm-hmm. Love will always have its way. And if it means, for instance, Rick, I'm going to give you depression, I'm going to give you this grief, I'm going to give you whatever, but we are still going to figure out a way to keep you in touch with that loving inside of you. Yes, and that brings me back to that word courage, which I think we don't understand in our culture. I don't think we define it well. And this is something that I think that this is a specialty of Stephen Jenkins, and he loves to dive into the etymology of words and look into the way words were used in the past and where they came from and how they've changed in our culture. And he uses many examples of words in his books of how we have changed the meaning of the word over time and in the process of changing the meaning of certain very central and powerful words, we actually change our culture and our relationship to life itself. Mm -hmm. And courage, forgetting that the word and the whole concept of courage, the whole experience of courage, comes from the heart. And we don't have much of a connection to our heart in this culture. This is not a heart-centered culture. We don't know the heart in this culture. So Mm -hmm. courage has become usurped by the head to mean something rather different. Now it's gotten kind of more into that, you know, and this this is where you're absolutely right, Daniel, in terms of this idea that we've, sort of flattened out the meaning of a lot of words so that courage right now is is now more in terms of the soldier on the battlefield, the football player on the football field. It turns into this combative kind of, you know, connotation where, no, 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 it's not about that at all. We're talking about the courage to deal with things unseen, like grief, like depression, as well as to go out in the world and You know, like for me, sometimes I have a difficult time where there's lots and lots and lots of people. I can get overwhelmed just because my sensitivities are like, ah, 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 (laughs) whatever's happening. But then I have to have the courage. Like if I go out dancing and set a bar, I do literally create energetic screens. And that's my process so that I can go out there because I really don't want to, you know, be dealing with drunk people. And it always works out beautifully because I've taken, had the strength and the courage to put this little thing together so that it's like, it's going to be okay. Just relax, Rick. It's going to be okay. Put up the screens, and it all always works out fine. Now, when you say putting up screens, do you mean like putting, putting up a kind of a psychic shield? Um, in a way, you know, there's actually, here's another Ho'oponopono thing. Dr. Hugh Len, he has this cleansing little mantra, which the, the full, full of it is Emil Green... Um, let me let me see if I can remember this correctly. Emerald green, uh, ice, uh, ice blue, white. I'm, I'm missing a color in there, and they'll come back to me. But basically, there's a cleansing. Like when I used to ride my bike in Taos, it's kind of dangerous here because there's no bike trails, and there's about one out of every twenty drivers really does kind of like to lean into you, so they're within like a foot of you. And I would just go ahead and do this. Just say these words to sort of clean the field and that creates a protection mm, okay. and I think even even I'm sorry forgive me thank you I love you can create that protection too so 
so that we're just keeping it clean so that we're not, you know, we have enough of, you know, a nice clean field around us so it doesn't allow these other energies to enter. Or else it changes the way we respond to what happens in our life. Yes. In fact, here it is. It's indigo, ice blue, white. And basically you're taking whatever and then turning it into the spiritual, into, you know, into the divine by going towards the white. So that it's just exactly what you're talking about. And yes, it could change my whole response to it as well. And bringing up those colors, which are like symbols of, I would guess that they represent symbols of vibrational frequencies. Yes. Which we can connect with on a feeling level. Mm-hmm. Again, through the heart. Yes. Yes. Now, you know, now, you're mentioning the heart, and of course, I absolutely agree with you, with everything you're saying with the heart. You know, sometimes, and, I, and this is this very place of improvisation, Tonio, and I don't know if this works for you as well in your own life, but there's a juggling act that I go through. There's, of course, the mental, which is useful, but I do not want to rely on it exclusively. Then the heart, which is invaluable, because that's kind of the center of all things. And then finally, there's the gut which is our instinctual and intuitive responses to things. And to me, it's a constant juggling of all three of those in terms of feeling what's happening inside of me as as well as how to respond to the world. Yes, and the gut is not separate from the heart and and the head, and the gut by itself won't, won't really serve us. You mentioned... The gut is where we experience intuition. I think intuition is probably more of a combination between or collaboration between the gut and the heart. Uh huh. And also, I think that, that the brain has to do a little bit of translating. Oh yes. After after right. we've gotten those those hits in the gut in the heart, then the brain has to translate and say, "Oh, okay. So this is what is you know has to create a certain kind of understanding to what the feelings actually are." And that's what the brain is good at. Oh, it's great <laughs> for that. <laughs> and, that's, you know, and, of course, that's kind of part of the, the big point of the book, which is rather than right now, we're letting the ego drive the show. And you know, that's all of our identities and all of our beliefs and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and I, I flip it over, and I think there's something I say towards the end of the, uh, of the introduction and which, uh, what is it? Oh, this is the key. When our soul work is ongoing, our ego takes on the role of knowing exactly how to manifest the soul in the world. So just like you were saying with the, you know, the heart and the gut and the head, that everybody all of a sudden knows their place in terms of how to work interactively with each other to get the best possible results. Right, and there's this wonderful quote, who I don't remember who said it, that um, the intellect, and we could include the ego in with it, are wonderful servant, but a terrible master. Yep, that's, that's exactly right. That's perfect. And unfortunately, we live... You know, did you know, Tonio, that the most popular forms of uh, writing out there right now in terms of sales, there's memoirs, and dystopian fiction. Yes, because we're living in a dystopian reality. 
And the memoir to me is just, you know, further extension of that ego-centered thinking. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't, you know, I don't want to disparage it by any means. And it's fascinating, particularly for someone who's had an amazing story that I could learn something from that story. But there's such a sort of over, you know, dependence on that. And, you know, I feel like that so many people, particularly in the land, in celebrity land, they feel like there's this obligation, oh, I have to write my memoir now before I die. And I'm, you know, for there's a lot of it is just not that interesting to me because I want to cut to the chase. And that was sort of, I guess, the point of me doing the book that I did, which is like, let's cut to the chase and then we can, you know, we can be asking ourselves our own questions in terms of writing our own memoir, even if it's internally, and we become, once again, answering that question of when was the last time you were enchanted by a story, particularly your own. Mm-hmm. Right. Memoirs can go both ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking with Rick Halterman. He's the author of this wonderful book, Curriculum of the Soul, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Can you believe that an hour has gone by already? <laughs> I just looked at the clock, Tony. I was like, oh, no, not again. <laughs> Here we are. Well, and I should remind your listeners also, you're listening to Tony Epstein, who is the creator of the Magical Mystery Tour and brings these wonderful conversations about. So thank you all so much for listening to it. Mm, yes, thank you so much for listening. And so there's another thing that I've been wanting to get to for a long time, and this is also within the realm of imagination, and th- that is the quote from Nicole Krauss. Yeah. Do you have that? Well, I can pull it up. Because I uh, have it. I have it right in front of me. So Yeah, I you do it. You do it. Okay, so this is Nicole Krauss from her book, The History of Love. Even now, all possible feelings do not yet exist. There are still those that lie beyond our capacity and our imagination. From time to time, when a piece of music no one has ever written, or a painting no one has ever painted, or something else impossible to predict, fathom, or yet described takes place, a new feeling enters the world, and then, for the millionth time in the history of feeling, the heart surges and absorbs the impact. To me, that is such a a profoundly beautiful recognition and acknowledgement of life. Well, it's something that we don't usually, because we're always sort of expanding from the intellectual thing, what's the new idea, you know, who's the new person that just got the Nobel Prize, that kind of thing. And she's talking about on the emotional level, which is very rarely considered from this context, how that whole encyclopedia is in fact expanding, and to the extent that we can pay attention to it, the extent it's going to alter our own lives. And to know that, in a sense, Anything is possible because there's a, a virtually an infinite range of possibility that has yet to come into our realm of experience and reality. Yeah. So this may be the, the perfect moment. Do you want me to read that poem, The Hug, by Tess Gallagher? Because this is one of those very experiences you're talking about. Absolutely. So this is Tess Gallagher, and for those of 
were not familiar, Tess Gallagher was married to Raymond Chandler, the great writer. So anyhow, this is her poem, The Hug. A woman is reading a poem on the street, and another woman stops to listen. We stop, too, with our arms around each other. Suddenly, a hug comes over me, and I'm giving it to you, like a variable star shooting light off to make itself comfortable, then subsiding. I finish, but keep holding you. A man walks up to us, and we know he hasn't come out of nowhere, but if he could, he would have. He looks homeless because of how he needs. Can I have one of those, he asks you. And I feel you nod. I'm surprised, surprised you don't tell him how it is, that I'm yours, only yours, exclusive as a nose to its face. Love, that's what we're talking about. Love that nabs you with, for me only, and holds on. So I walk over to him and put my arms around him and try to hug him like I mean it. He's got an overcoat on so thick I can't feel him past it. I'm starting to hug and thinking, how big a hug is this supposed to be? How long shall I hold this hug? Already we could be eternal, his arms falling over my shoulders, my hands not meeting behind his back. He is so big. I put my head into his chest and snuggle in. I lean into him. I lean my blood and my wishes into him. He stands for it. This is his, and he's starting to give it back so well. I know he's getting it. This hug. So truly, so tenderly, we stopped having arms. And I don't know if my lover has walked away or what, or if the woman is still reading the poem. Clearly, a little permission is a dangerous thing. But when you hug someone, you want it to be a masterpiece of connection, the way the button on his coat will leave the imprint of a planet on my cheek when I walk away, when I try to find some place to go back to. So there, Tonya, was, I think, exactly what you're talking about. When she's talking about she's trying to figure out, like she's been so disoriented by this amazing sort of happenstance connection that she doesn't even know the feeling to even... She knows she's had this feeling, but she can't even describe it. It's so new. It's so disorienting. Right. She's not sure if it's appropriate, if it, if it fits within the container of the type of experience that, that we consider to be acceptable in our culture. Yes. So it's almost as if Due to the intensity of that hug, she stepped off the planet, and she's like, so what ground do I have to stand on now? Because there is no cultural context for this. Right. She's expanded her world. Yes. Yes. And that's so beautiful about that poem. It's the very thing that you've been referring to, which is through this imagination. Now here, you know, this was what was so lovely about the, the experience of the poem, you know, she could have just done the sort of perfunctory thing as far as I'll just hug this person and get it over with because I really don't care for homeless people or something like that. Instead, she fully dives into the experience and says, you know, how big of a hug am I going to give? And, she, and when she says, I'm going, you know, she leans into it. So there's something quite beautiful about that. And here's the other human being, a complete stranger who leans right back into it. And they meet in this whole new place, two complete strangers. And you're like, oh, my God. You know, like at the very end of that Naomi Shihab Nye poem that I read a few weeks ago, which was like, 
this can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. Yes, and it can happen between a homeless person and somebody who doesn't feel like a marginalized part of our culture. Yeah, yeah there is a Martin Luther King quote, and it talks about, uh, I can't remember, there was somebody in the Levite that meet, like, you know, a homeless person, and their response immediately is, if I help this person, what will happen to me? And the Good Samaritan is with them, and he says, oh, what if I help this person, what will happen to them? Mm. <laughs> I think that defines the difference between the way the soul experiences and the way the ego experiences. Yep. You have got it on the head of the nail. <laughs> you know, that's perfect. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. And, of course, there is a risk here. That's the thing that's, I think, so hard, particularly when we're having to contend with our egos all the time, that risk, like the woman in, in the poem, you know, The Hug, where she's taking that risk of, I'm going to lean into this, versus, you know, there's, of course, our natural part of the ego is like, I just want to get this over with and get back to my lover. Mm -hmm. You know, get back to my comfort zone, basically. And also her concern of what he might be thinking. Yes. Yes, because she stepped outside of herself. And that's the soul, which is like, all of this information is part of the experience, not just my singular point of view. Yes. And I think <laughs> that's where we rely on the poets to get those larger points of view, because we're certainly not going to get it on breaking news, even though that has its own place. Uh, but we want the poets to give us those large, large points of view that really take us to whatever that new feeling, that new thing, to remind us about certain things, too, that we may know, but we simply haven't had the courage to experience yet. And to open the doors to that infinite realm of possibility that, that surrounds this very, very narrow sense of what is, or what we know to be. Yes. Yeah, you know, now here's Jack Gilbert's poem. It's not in the book, um, but it's one of the most astounding poems, particularly for our time, and it's called A Brief for the Defense. So it, it starts out quite harshly, but I love how it turnarounds at the end, and it's the very thing that you've been referring to throughout our conversation today. So the poem, A Brief for the Defense. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of, of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit that there will be music despite everything. 
We stand at the prow again of a small ship anchored late at night in the tiny port, looking over to the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes and one naked light burning. To hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. You know, when I first had read that poem, Tonio, I just burst into tears over those last lines. But I can still feel it now, which is that to have that opening in our lives for the unexpected to take place, even in the midst of how harsh the world can actually be, that is worth everything. Yes, and again, that brings us back to keeping our heart open to it all, to everything. And this is just maybe me, and I don't know if you would agree with this or not, Tonio, by using the word heart is quite accurate, but I would also say that the heart can take any form, whether it's love, compassion, courage, uh, curiosity, can take any form of these great either, you know, tools we've all been given or our higher selves aspects. And this is what's so great. There's an improvisation. So what, what role does my heart need to take on right now? Does it need to be open? Of course, that's usually the first place is to be open. Uh, then there's other times where it's like, so is compassion the appropriate response here? Is it going to be patience that's going to be the response? Is it surrender that's going to be the response, which are all, I think, parts of the heart because it still has that openness to go to any one of these attributes that any one of us can inhabit. So how do we determine that? This, I think, is that juggling act between the head and the heart and the gut, Mm -hmm. our instincts and our intuitions. This is like now we're back to John Coltrane, you know, playing my favorite things. So what are the notes that we're going to pick in that particular moment to make this melody fully come alive? To have a a collaboration, a, a kind of yeah. a, a roundtable approach to everything. And this is what's so hard, and I think this is where we get back into that you know, great idea of being present. How fully present can I be that I'm not, for instance, running my old tapes of, oh, woe is me, it didn't work out in my childhood or whatever, that how can I be so present so that I'm paying attention to how the heart is feeling in that moment? What are my instincts and my my intuition's telling me, and how does my brain, you know, sort of read the information so that I can act, you know, the how, how fast can we be? You know, there's this great anthem, hollow poem, I don't have this in front of me, but it's, here's the whole poem in essence, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, it's like on Christmas Day in Hempstead in London, there was a movie theater, and the girl, a little girl, walks from her house to the movie theater, and when she gets there, the theater is closed, and at this point, she's like blue and just shivering, and at that exact moment, the manager of the theater happened to be driving by, and he parks his car, gets right out, unlocks the door, and the show is on. And the last line of the poem is, that day, he was the fastest man on earth. How do we respond that quickly what's happening in front of us with that very thing you're talking about, the open heart that says, oh, well, this is what needs to happen. 
No, I don't get to go to the grocery store. No, I don't get to visit. I'll be, you know, 10 minutes late to see my mother, whatever it is. I'm going to take care of this thing that's happening right now. And sometimes there's an inner struggle to get there. Always. <laughs> Usually for me, there is always like, what about this? And I can, I can hear myself going into my head and I'm like, oh, Rick, just shut up. <laughs> well, I was thinking, and this is right up your alley. I was thinking of the Keith Jarrett story of how he almost refused to perform his most famous performance and recording. And was this the Cologne concert? Yes. And what ha- tell me the story. Well, you actually told it on the show that you sent me over a month ago about how he showed up and the piano was out of tune. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember now I know exactly what you're talking about. He was completely discouraged because everything, ticket sales weren't great, pianos out of tune, everything that could go wrong went wrong. And then, you know, and he thought, oh, gosh, this is just going to be a complete train wreck. And as soon as he went into, you know, found the jumping point, you know, that I had sent you that idea by email, his jumping point of improvisation, once he found the door, it just flew wide open. Prior to doing his solo concerts, I don't know if he does this with his trios or not, but he, he meditates backstage. So he's completely, ideally, clean, uh, you know, and empty of thoughts before he goes out there so he knows that, when his finger finally touches the keys on the piano that he's entering from a pretty pure place. And I think when when I remember him talking about this particular concert, you know, there was all this stuff, and he thinks ultimately it helped him get completely off balance to get to that other place, that there wasn't the usual predetermined of, oh, this is working out, this is great, I don't have to be bothered that actually all the bothering is what took him even more immediately to get him out of his normal comfort zone. Or his normal response to circumstances around yes. him. Yes, exactly. Right. Which in that so, case was a piano that was out of tune, that his first inclination was, I refuse to play yeah. on this, this yeah, piece of junk. <laughs> yeah, understandably. So... There's that, that very interesting aspect of that maybe a lot of these distractions, because I know you've, you've mentioned this in other interviews that I've listened to, the world right now is so focused on having distractions with our devices and all of this bombardment of information, all that kind of stuff. And maybe that if we use those distractions without fully distracting us, they can bring us to a neutral place as well because it's almost it's an information overload. But I think the tendency, of course, is not that. It takes, tends to take us out of the present moment and get lost in the distraction. Mm-hmm. And we're so easily distracted. Oh, my God. Well, isn't that the ego? And, <laughs> and also, going back to Keith Jarrett, he, he's very touchy about distractions. I mean, he's notorious for... for oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> even if you're coughing in the audience, he hates that. Right, because I think it's because it distracts him from probably what he feels is his tenuous hold on his clean space from which he probably feels he needs to be coming from to stay in the present moment with yeah. his music. Which is very interesting because I know a lot of people feel distracted when they listen to a Keith Chat recording 
and they hear his vocal emoting. Right. <laughs> do you remember there was that woman? Do you remember the film Five Easy Pieces with Jack Nicholson years ago? And there was a woman, his sister, who was a concert pianist, and she would do exactly that during the recording, and they'd always have to stop the recording in the middle and say, no, 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 we just want to hear the music. We don't want to hear you humming along. Huh. I, I don't actually remember that. That was so, so long ago. Yeah. But that, you know what that makes me think of is, is that movie, Fiat uh, Minuten, Four Minutes. Oh, and I haven't seen it. You'll have to tell me about it. Oh, I thought you had seen it, that you said that you had it's that German film of the young girl who... Oh, yes. In fact, I watched it after you had sent me the link. Yeah. Oh. I did. So, so now, now I know exactly what you're talking about. So did you see the whole movie, or did you just see that short clip? Just the short thing. Oh. The movie is, is quite wonderful. It, it sets the context of that finale. How great. And I just love that piece because... It's playing the piano in a way that is completely outside of the box. Uh-huh. That was sort of like John Cage did it the other way when he went on and did his uh, you know, three minutes and 32 seconds when he went on and just basically closed the lid of the piano over the keys and sat there for 3.32 and then, um, then got up and left the stage. <laughs> Changed the whole world because I love the idea that he's basically saying, well... What if we actually listen to our silence? And actually, that's like space. It's one of those things that is not acknowledged or, or recognized by most people. Yep. Yeah, and you know, here, because I, I realize, Tonyo, I just I, I can I never believe how quickly our time goes together, and it's just such a pleasure. But here, there's a, a Rilke poem which goes to this place because we're getting close, tight on time. And this is not a long poem, um, but it's the poem, You See, I Want a Lot. And the coolness about this poem is it gets to this place we're just talking about, but also mentions where our failings are and how we can, you know, basically the wounds, the work, and how we discover our gifts. So here's the whole poem. You see, I want a lot. Maybe I want it all. The darkness of each infinite fall the play of the trembling light on each step up. So many live and want nothing and are knighted by their light judgments and even feelings. But you rejoice with every face that serves and is thirsty. And you are delighted the most by those who are useful and need you like they need a tool. You are not yet too old, and it is not too late to dive into your emerging depths where life quietly reveals its own mystery. I love how that ends, that, that when we do, you know, to spend that time, like whether we're talking about our imagination, whether I'm checking in with my heart and my gut and my head, that we keep diving into those emerging depths, because I think experience quite naturally gives us those depths in the course of our lives. And we keep diving into those waters that life will keep revealing its mystery to us. Not that I'll ever have anything fully figured out, because I wouldn't want to be in that place, to tell you the truth. But the idea that something new is always going to be revealed, and then I can wake up every morning like you and go like, whoa, this is great. And like, for instance, you'll do a weather through imagining, or you'll start doing that whole exercise you were talking about last week in terms of 
you know, projecting joy and love out into the world, that there's this great experience of being alive, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it's what an incredible thing. We actually get bodies to do this for this short period of time. What a thrill. And that is the soul's journey. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why this book of yours is so powerful and so wonderful, Curriculum of the Soul, because it really lays out most, if not all, of the dimensions of the soul's journey that we yeah, can, and everybody that we can enter into. Yeah, figure it out for themselves, but at least I wanted to remind them, here are the signposts. Pay attention to the signposts, and you will find your way if you're paying attention. If you lose sight of the signposts, then a little bit of work to remind yourselves what the signposts are. Rick, again, thank you so much for being on, and we'll do it again sometime. Tonio, you are incredible. Thank you for doing what you do. And you're incredible, and thank you for what you do. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a wonderful Bye-bye. week. Bye-bye.